0: Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Columbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up.
1: So glad you could join us for the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. All of it brought to you by the Bradley Foundation and its Conceived in Liberty Bradley Speakers Series. Uh, for more information and to watch these 15-minute interviews, go to bradleyfdn.org liberty. We'll tell you all about the latest video in that collection uh, just a little bit later in the podcast. Jim, before we even get to our good martini, we have to deal with this. This is one of those generational moments where I think we're slapping our heads against the desk, but uh, this is the New York Post. Periods may be coming to a full stop. Sorry, ladies, we're talking about the punctuation mark. While older texters may consider the period an innocent symbol that a sentence has ended, digital natives considered a triggering form of aggression. The punctuation problem ignited over social media recently with Gen Z and millennials agreeing that ending a sentence with a period is overly hostile and, worse yet, extremely uncool. Quote, only old people or troubled souls put periods at the end of every sentence, wrote Digital culture journalist Victoria Turk. The thing is, she says, in a messaging conversation, a period is simply not necessary. It's clear when you've finished your thought already. So, what function does the period fulfill? As a result, using a period in messaging now looks rather emphatic and can come across as if you're quite cross or annoyed. Jim, I feel like we have another punctuation mark that involves emphasis. It's called an exclamation point. So, I know we're just old fuddy-duddies who are telling young people to get off our lawn here, but what do you make of the fact, as a writer, that the period somehow is unnecessary?
2: What the hell, question mark? This is ridiculous, exclamation point. You know, it just leaves me, I can't even find the words, Greg, ellipses. You know, I had a hard enough time with E.E. Cummings and bell hooks just deciding, I don't believe in capital letters anymore. I'm not going to do it. I have a hard enough time with our president who writes tweets saying, you know what? That word is really important. I'm going to capitalize it. Maybe it's his German heritage and the habit of capitalizing nouns or something. But yeah, you know, I, I look, I, I realized that when you become a writer. The rules of language probably matter more to you. Maybe you didn't have the experience I did starting at congressional quarterly and then onto wire services and dealing with editors where if you use the wrong punctuation, they would hit you with an electric cattle prod. Maybe that's what makes me touchy about this sort of thing. But no, 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 this is not, you don't just get to make up the rules of grammar everywhere you go. Then you have anarchy. You want to know why you see rioting in Wisconsin right now? Because of bad punctuation. That's why. People are saying, Jim, how can you say that? You, no, you know what you're saying? How can you say that? Because you have a question mark at the end of your sentence. You know what happens when you don't have any punctuation at the end of it, Greg? What? You end up with upspeak. My name is Sarah. I'm 21. I don't know, are you? Why are you asking me? You're the one who's supposed to be introducing yourself. No, no, this is it. Get out the floggers. Get out the medieval torture devices and use them until young people understand the importance of punctuation. Did we learn nothing from the grammar books who pointed out that punctuation saved lives? It's the difference between let's eat grandma and let's
1: eat grandma. I feel like this is one of the hills you're ready to die on as our culture is under perpetual assault. Yes, period, full stop. <laughs> my theory is, and I don't know if this is accurate, but my theory is, is that young people just text back and forth with like two or three words, so they feel like punctuation mark is superfluous, like going to the store or sup and things like that. And, and so they don't actually get on to second thoughts in their text. But we just saw, I'm sure you saw this on social media, this is not about periods, it's about commas, where uh, I can't remember which media outlet it was, about uh, the guy that killed Osama bin Laden was banned from Delta for not wearing a mask. But in the headline on Twitter, it said, Delta bans former Navy SEAL who killed Osama bin Laden for not wearing a mask, which makes it look like Osama bin Laden was not killed because he killed thousands of Americans, but because he refused to wear a mask.
2: Yeah, I mean, bin Laden not wearing a mask, that's not even in the top 100 worst things he's ever done. <laughs> Let's, uh, I suppose you say these two-word text messages. I suppose I, I should just be glad that there are words and it hasn't been completely replaced with emojis. Uh, and perhaps I'm a little hypocritical in this and that my, you know, half my Twitter feed is me finding just the right gif to describe the, the point. I, I think uh, one of the reasons that, that we need words is for clarity, for effectiveness in communication. Ladies, it turns out all those guys weren't saying, hey, do you want to shop for some eggplants? Ladies, if you send me a text of a peach, I assume you want me to go to the grocery store. That's the message I'm taking from this. Apparently, has other messages. I'll let you go look that up.
1: All right. I think it's time to uh, move on to our good martini. That's your now. bonus martini, listeners. Well, we might be getting back to those emojis in the second martini in some ways. But, uh, Jim, let's, let's talk about our good martini. Uh, we weren't exactly the most enthusiastic uh, in anticipating the opening night of the Republican National Convention. But I think both of us came away Quite impressed with the lineup and the messaging, with some exceptions. I'm not sure why Kimberly Guilfoyle was shouting the entire time to an empty hall. But uh, I thought the most powerful speeches of the night, obviously Tim Scott, absolutely fantastic as the closer for the evening, which in and of itself was a good idea. Uh, Two quick clips from that. First of all, talking about how he turned his back on academics, thought football was his path to success, and then he flunked a bunch of classes. And so he, he finally took academics seriously, And then he got a mentor, which not only changed his life, but is changing policy in communities of color right now. The
0: next year, I met my mentor, John Moniz, a Chick-fil-A operator. John saw something in me that I could not see in myself and started teaching me valuable life lessons, like having a job would be a good thing, but creating jobs would be even better, that having an income could change my lifestyle, but creating a profit could change my community. He planted the seeds of what would become Opportunity Zones. This initiative that the president and I worked together on is now bringing more than $75 billion of private sector investment into distressed communities.
1: And then of course, his personal story is fantastic. Uh, how a single mom, uh, he and his brother and his mom were in a two-bedroom house with the grandparents and so forth. And here's what he had to say about how much has changed, how much America has improved between his grandfather's younger years
0: and his own standing today. My grandfather's 99th birthday would have been tomorrow. Growing up, he had to cross the street if a white person was coming. He suffered the indignity of being forced out of school as a third grader to pick cotton, and he never learned to read or write. Yet, he lived long enough to see his grandson become the first African American to be elected to both the United States House and the United States Senate in the history of this country. Our family went from cotton to Congress in one lifetime. And that's why I believe the next American century can be better than the last.
1: And so, Jim, one more clip here uh, that that I certainly found powerful. Maximo Alvarez, the Cuban-American immigrant, saying all these wonderful ideas about how the government's going to take care of you. I've heard about all these before. I heard them from Castro 60 years ago. Don't believe it. I know how this ends.
0: I'm speaking to you today because I have seen people like this before. I've seen movements like this before. I've seen ideas like this before and I am here to tell you we cannot let them take over our country. I heard the promises of Fidel Castro and I can never forget all those who grew up around me, who look like me, who suffer and starve and died because they believe those empty promises.
1: So overall, Jim, uh, I thought for the most part, a very optimistic night. There were other good speeches as well. Uh, Andrew Pollack uh, talking about his daughter who was killed at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. The woman talking about right to try. All in all, I thought a very uplifting night and, and a good night for Republicans.
2: Yeah. Like you, I was pleasantly surprised. I think one of the things that had me skeptical going into it. We know the president has uh, been very interested in this. I was not thrilled to see Uh, that early graphic on Fox News that listed 12 featured speakers and uh, six of them had the last name Trump. President, obviously, the, uh, by the way, apparently when we said the president would be appearing all four nights and you're like, oh God, we're going to get four speeches. No, it was was the roundtables and one of him with the uh, hostages who had come home. And that was a pretty darn good segment. That was about as empathetic as the president gets. He talked about uh, uh, people recovering COVID patients, the pandemic and the response to it is not going to be a, a sterling, shining success in the minds of most American voters. So if you want to mitigate that, if you want to nullify that, you put the president out there trying to look empathetic. That was the centerpiece of the Repub- of the Democrats' attack last week. It was a pretty good segment. Um, I also think that the, the probably the less people have heard of you, maybe in some ways the better and more effective you are as a uh, advocate for President Trump. I mean, look, Tim Scott's speech, hit it out of the park. Nikki Haley, very solid, kind of what we've come to expect from her. People probably did never heard of Amy Johnson Ford. They may have heard, by the way, of Herschel Walker. Oh, Greg, who would have figured Herschel Walker would be such a fantastic speaker? He was great. Um, A kind of a funny story of him and Donald Trump going on (laughs) the uh, It's a Small World (laughs) ride at Disneyland, you know, Uh, a humanizing story of President Trump, which you don't always get. Uh, Democratic State Representative Vernon Jones, um, really kind of taking the, uh, the notion of, of African Americans are obligated to vote for uh, Democrats head on. Um, Andrew Pollack, the father of the Parkland school shooting victim, uh, his daughter Meadow, grabbed your attention with the words scumbag gunman and did not let go. Um, and I think if you want to convince people to vote for Trump, don't leave it in the hands of the politicians. Let ordinary Americans tell their stories. Because all of their stories were about something, they were about the notion that gun control is this magic solution to school, to shootings. Uh, they were about the the dangers of what happens when socialists get control in an authoritarian system. Uh, Natalie Harp and the literally life and death consequences of right to try. Um, look, th- these are these are real issues, people. This is a sort of, this actually this worked. I, I think this was, particularly also the, the segments in between the speakers. But well, I should point out that the uh, the auditorium in Washington was actually a really good venue. Uh, remember, this is a convention that had been rescheduled twice. Uh, it was originally supposed to be in Charlotte. Then they moved it to Jacksonville, and it became clear they weren't going to be able to do the traditional event. Um, it looked right. The segments in between the videos were very almost Reagan-esque. Um, and you know, here's the thing. When you take snippets of Trump and images of flyovers and images of him hugging disabled b- vets and... Little kids and waving flight. it works. It makes for good. I'll be really interested to see what the what the ratings are. If ratings for this one are high, maybe we've got—if not a completely new race—then it kind of demonstrates. But it, it could be something of a reset button for uh, the Trump campaign. It was. It was. I was very impressed with the last night. I, I did not go into this expecting this. Not perfect, as you said. Um, someone could have and should have said to Kimberly Guilfoyle that um, she had a microphone. and that the viewers at home could hear her, so she did not need to shout every word. Um, But I even thought Donald Trump Jr.'s speech was pretty solid. I I think in a very strange way, not having an audience there, that means they don't try to play to the crowd. They don't try to, you know, like, well, a couple of points, Kimberly Guilfoyle paused after applause lines, and it's like, there's nobody there. It's not going (laughs) to, I know maybe you're expecting people at home to jump up out of their sofas and, and cheer, but that's not, you know. Uh, it's a different purpose. Think of the the Oval Office addresses of the Reagan era. And for a lot of these speakers, it actually makes them better. It means they're not, uh, uh, you know, playing up to it. They don't overdo it. They just kind of go out, they look in the camera, and they make their argument. And the right hands, that can be a very effective approach. And so I think, you know, we'll see how the rest of the nights go. But this is a very strong start for the Republicans. Uh, maybe, a, maybe a better one that they had any right to expect or deserve. But, uh, yeah, it worked uh, yeah, you know, worked pretty well and I'm not dreading the next three nights the way I thought I would be.
1: Well, let's, uh, let's hope it continues with this uh, approach because I, I agree it was very effective and I think the contrast with the Democrats was fantastic. The whole Democratic convention, other than slamming Trump, was this is what the government's going to do for you if you put us into power, whereas everybody from Andrew Pollock talking about guns to right to try to Tim Scott and opportunity zones and Nikki Haley's speech and on and on and on was, look, America is the land of opportunity, and freedom is the fuel of that opportunity, and if government can get regulations and taxes and other things out of the way, there's no limit to what you can do. The messages uh, could not have been in stronger contrast, and I hope that the the freedom message uh, still resonates strongly. Speaking of freedom, Jim, I thought another area that was very effective last night in the Republican message was condemning the violence in American cities, which Democrats refuse to do. It would be very easy to condemn the violence. while supporting police reforms if that's what they chose to do. But no, no, they either pretend it's not happening or they essentially condone it. And the Republicans called them out on it last night, and I think that could be a very effective issue. But that's just one of the issues that are difficult to make sense of right about now. And so trying to make sense of current events these days can be difficult. And Conceived in Liberty, the Bradley Speaker Series, is a new video series that offers meaningful perspectives through engaging fifteen-minute interviews. Just fifteen minutes—they're real quick, but they really help you understand what's going on these days. You can visit bradleyfdn.org/liberty to watch the most recent episode featuring acclaimed historian Dr. Alan Gelzo. Dr. Gelzo is a senior research scholar in the Humanities Council and director of initiatives on politics and statesmanship in the James Madison program at Princeton University. He's also a visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation and a 2018
2: Bradley Prize winner. In this episode, Gelzo eloquently argues that while the COVID-19 pandemic is indeed extraordinary, we can still apply valuable lessons from history in our efforts to effectively deal with it. A leading scholar on Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War, Gelzo also shares his perspective on American exceptionalism, leadership during this crisis, and the importance of getting history right. For Americans, he states, all that we have is our history. So that's Bradley
1: with an L-E-Y at the end, bradleyfdn.org slash liberty to watch the video. New episodes will debut weekly, so come back often and subscribe to their YouTube channel to be notified whenever a new one is posted. Again, bradleyfdn.org slash liberty. Speaking of liberty, Jim, let's go to our bad martini. Liberty University, of course, uh, founded, at least co-founded, I believe, in the early 1970s by the Reverend Jerry Falwell Sr. Jerry Falwell Sr. is certainly a prominent figure uh, in evangelical circles uh, as we were growing up and uh, all the way till his passing, I believe, in 2007. He was also a key figure in establishing the moral majority, which brought evangelical Christians much more into the political realm right around the 1980 election. Since that time, Uh, Some folks uh, have debated fiercely about how much evangelicals ought to be intertwined with politics. Are they known more for uh, pointing people to Christ, or are they known more for pointing people to the Republican Party? And as uh, the Trump era has uh, come on, uh, some evangelical figures have certainly stepped to the forefront, and others have wondered how they can do that without condemning some of Trump's uh, moral behavior over the years. One of those figures is Jerry Falwell Jr., the uh at least one time president of liberty i'm not even sure what his status is right now that's gone back and forth so many times in the last 24 hours but he was one of the first people to kind of explain away the access hollywood tape uh, in october of 2016 he's been uh in trump's corner since very early on in that campaign even in the republican primary of that year Uh, over time the alumni uh the students at liberty have grown Uh, disgruntled with Jerry Falwell Jr. He became less and less popular. And then uh, not too long ago, I guess a few weeks ago, came that picture of him on the yacht with a young lady who's not his wife with their pants undone. And that led to him taking a leave of absence or being suspended as president of Liberty. Well, yesterday Reuters comes out with the story that Falwell, his wife, and a Florida pool boy, not making this up, Uh, got involved a number of years ago, and it ultimately ended up with a series of rendezvous where the pool boy and Mrs. Falwell got together, uh, euphemistically, while Jerry Falwell Jr. watched from the corner. So, Jim... uh, They got to
2: know each other biblically.
1: Yes. Then he allegedly resigned. Then he took it back. Then maybe he did resign. Either way, he should be utterly fired from Liberty University. should have happened a long time ago given his conduct in a number of different ways. Uh, Jim, it's obviously very distressing because he's someone, despite his uh, obvious questionable ethics over the the last several years here, uh, is someone who's closely associated with uh, conservatism in some ways and also evangelical Christianity, which matters much more to me than the status of the Republican Party. And so obviously it's a a major hit. There's accurate cries of deep hypocrisy here. And so uh, they're going to get run through the ringer and we'll see what, uh, what the ultimate consequences is of that. But what do you make of the sordid saga of Jerry Falwell Jr. and his wife? You talked about it a lot in the jolt today about how, you know, anybody who grew up in the 80s knows that this is not necessarily unheard of in uh, televangelist circles and so forth. So what's the fallout here? Of yeah,
2: s- sordid saga is exactly the right words there, Greg, and I can't bear to watch. I don't even need to make the punchline. Every listener just in, inserted the punchline themselves. That's, that's why I love this show. Um, it, it, it's funny because if, if, I'm only a picture like a year ago and some Hollywood scriptwriter writer is, is pitching some movie or TV show and it's about a prominent evangelical leader and he's having an affair and the whole thing's consensual with the pool boy and it's involves so, all the other sordid stuff. And do you think like the studio head would look at this and say, "It's eh, kind of a little cliche, don't you think? A little on the nose with the pool boy, really, you know?" And and then having him do that, and then having a particular, you know, uh, ugly X-rated uh, uh, slur turn into the favorite uh, accusation of the supporters of the president. This guy, like, really—that it's a little too, you know, um, a little too on the nose, a little cliche. We, we've seen this story before. And I, you know, I mentioned as you're in right, the jolt. like if you would seen Jim and Tammy Faye Baker and I uh, was like, Jimmy Swaggered with the I've sinned against you, my Lord. And all the <laughs> yes. uh, uh, who, who's the brag, not Braggart. That was his name. The one who turned out to be gay and everyone was like, who can't? Oh, OK. Ted yeah, Haggard. Episode. Ted Haggard. There we go. You know, most people, the idea of an evangelical leader on TV a lot getting caught in a sex scandal doesn't exactly seem shocking to us. And, you know, I don't think it necessarily means that people who are in this position are necessarily worse human beings. I think it just tells you that uh, the temptations, whether it's of the flesh or temptations to uh, material wealth and success, this belief that you are immune from following God's word, doing the right thing, or that there are exceptions for you that you don't really have to because you're special. Well, look, the more money, the more wealth, the more power, the more people you have around you, who are treating you like you're a gift from God, guess what? I think that temptation doesn't go away, and it probably even becomes harder to resist. Because, you know, some people say when you, you know, talk about wind power, some people talk about solar power. Greg, I think the world's most, most abundant renewable resource is the human capacity for self-justification. We can always find some excuse. Well, it's not really that bad because I do this other good thing that makes it okay. So I, I wasn't shocked by this. And I think probably the most interesting and, and you know intriguing and maybe even disturbing wrinkle is the stories that came out about Roger Cohen and the idea that maybe Cohen the fixer had something to do with this and Jerry Falwell Jr. had come out and endorsed Trump uh, back a couple of years ago. The, the wrinkle in this thing is that I, Jerry Falwell Jr. has never seemed reluctant in his endorsement of Donald Trump. He seemed pretty enthusiastic and full-throated since the word go. So um, I don't buy this idea that he was somehow blackmailed look, this, this guy doesn't, he's, he's no role model. He, he you know, he's, he's not lived up to his values and standards in a whole bunch of different ways. So I don't really get why Liberty University would not want to say, you know what, thanks for everything you've done. We know you got a famous name. You're probably great with the fundraising, uh, but it's time to move on. And it sounds like as of this morning, he's out. Uh, but then again, in the last 24 hours, it's gone in and out, in and out, insert your own off color punchline here.
1: Well, I got to think he's looking for some sort of massive golden parachute to get out of there. That's probably why they because if
2: there's anything the Bible tells us, it's like massive golden parachutes. <laughs> it's really what Jesus was all about, right? He's well, for a really large
1: needle to get through. He's 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 playing to his role all the way to the end here. It looks like, and uh, the thing is, you know you. You said it, Jim. People get put up on pedestals. We talk about it with politicians all the time. Don't make them your heroes. Don't worship them. They're just people that we hire. The same is true for college presidents. And uh, it's even true with uh, people who should be focused on on keeping uh, clean moral character. Uh, but it's, it's discouraging when it happens. And then the the cries of hypocrisy Take on a new level of credence with a lot of different people. All I would say is, though, that um, while this news appears to be true, God hasn't changed, Christ hasn't changed, the Bible hasn't changed, so those things remain true. All right, let's talk about our crazy martini now, Jim, and let's move on to Nancy Pelosi. I'm taking a page out of, I guess it was Barack Obama maybe in the 2010 midterms when he said it's time to punish our enemies. Nancy Pelosi has decided that Republicans are trying to steal the election. And therefore, uh, she has decided that they are domestic enemies. Two quick clips here. It's essentially the same clip. But uh, first of all, she talks about how she has to fight the Republicans or else she'd be violating her congressional oath.
3: We take an oath to protect and defend the Constitution from all enemies, foreign and domestic. And sadly, the domestic enemies to our voting system and wow. our honoring our Constitution uh, are right at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue with their allies in the Congress of the United States.
1: And here's how she works up to calling them enemies of the state.
3: Let's just get out there uh, and mobilize, organize, uh, and not uh, let the president deter anybody uh, from voting. And again, support the postal system, which is election, election central. They're doing everything they can. Suppress the vote of, of, uh, with your actions. Scare people. Intimidate right. by saying law enforcement will be there. Uh, uh, diminish the role of the, of the postal system in all of this. It's really actually shameful. Enemies of the state.
1: Jim, as we all know, Enemy of the State is a Gene Hackman movie where he co-stars with uh, Will Smith and the government is after them and so forth. So Nancy Pelosi, I don't know if she's just trying to do some RNC counter-programming here, but uh, this is obviously beyond the pale. And of course, if a Republican had said the same about (laughs) Barack Obama, and I guess some probably did, the media backlash would have been outrageous. And of course, the MSNBC host in this case is just kind of nodding along.
2: Yeah, it, it doesn't even jump out to them as unusual or inappropriate language. You know, look, it's okay to be really angry at the opposing political party. It's okay to say, I, don't, I really don't like those people. I think their policy is going to take us in the wrong direction. I think their entire idea of the conception of the country, what it stands for, what we're supposed to be, are wrong. You can get mad at them, right? But you, don't, you probably don't want to succumb down into hate. And you probably just look like when they hear enemies, I've never been comfortable with that language in politics, in part because Al-Qaeda is our enemy. ISIS is our enemy. People who want to kill us are our enemies. Uh, Idiot politicians are not our enemies. They can be our opponents. They they are people we want to beat at the ballot box, but they are not necessarily a malevolent and evil force. And we should not mistake our political opponents for those who who are in a life and death struggle with. This is not that far from her past rhetoric on this. And I don't quite get how you can, you can lament the anger and, and tensions and, and rage in our politics and then say the problem is our, you know, our the opposing party, which is an enemy of the state. Like enemy of the state means hostile foreign countries and terrorists. That doesn't just mean somebody who says things we don't like. If you want to say Antifa starting arson, that's a little closer. You know, somebody wants to overthrow the government, that's a little closer to enemy of the state if you want to do that. A bunch of politicians who stand up and say things you don't like or interpret the laws differently. No, no, it's not the same. You can't just, you know, use these terms interchangeably. Or if you do, you cannot be surprised when somebody says, aha, well, I'm going to go shoot up a softball field full of Republican lawmakers. Because I've been hearing from Nancy Pelosi that these are the enemies of the state. They're not really bad people. They're not really wrong. They're not really political opponents. No, they are enemies, right? I mean, like, it's deeply frustrating. with and both sides have done enough to convince their followers that if their side loses the election, the other side had to cheat, Uh, it has to have been stolen, Uh, it has to have been shenanigans at the ballot box, that uh, the problem is, you hear a lot of grief and aggravation sent Trump's way when he goes off on these rants. He deserves it, he shouldn't be saying these things. But when the Democrats say, ah, you know, when (laughs) J.B. Lurk Curtis saw a postal truck being taken away by a guy in a red hat, you know, People buy into this stuff, and they get into this, this fury, this belief that any Trump, if, you know, look, I don't think Trump's likely to win, but if he does, I have no reason to think that it would know, happen that way. I can see a scenario where a whole bunch of Americans look at what the Democrats are offering and say, mm, I don't want to do this. It's pretty much what happened last time around. It can happen. But the Democrats are so wedded to this idea that the only legitimate outcome is their victory that they're doing the exact same undermining of public faith in elections that they accuse the Republicans of doing. And they're so wrapped up in their own ever-ending supernova of a sun-level rage at the opposition, they cannot recognize what they're doing to the rest of the country and how they are contributing to this toxic and nasty atmosphere that anybody with half a brain is like, I don't want to go anywhere near politics because everybody's always angry and screaming at each other. And they always seem like they're on the verge of having a nervous breakdown and and throwing punches at each other.
1: All right, Jim, tonight is Tuesday night at the Republican National Convention, of course. Uh, We've got Nick Sandman. It'll be interesting to see if CNN carries that part of it. Um, (laughs) The bigger names are going to be Rand Paul, Mike Pompeo, and Melania Trump, which uh, means that, of course, we're going to have 24 hours of Rose Garden Twitter fights (laughs) uh, following her address from the Rose Garden today. Are you ready for this?
2: Greg, can you believe that Melania Trump took away all the blooming tulips? Where are all the August tulips? I can't find them anywhere, inside or outside the White House. Because tulips don't bloom in August. You know, Tuesday night is traditionally the week weakest night. You know, you get to the excitement of the opening. Uh, the Wednesday night usually features the vice president or the vice presidential nominee. And then Thursday night is the grand finale with the president or the presidential nominee. Um, you know, but let's, we'll see what happens. It should be, uh like I said, I was impressed last night. We'll see how it goes tonight. Uh, you know, my, my only last closing piece of advice for listeners, um, I learned this, th- everyone on Twitter told me this at the same time. If you want to watch, watch it on C-SPAN. You, you get all the programming directly. It was a very odd phenomenon last night. The most people think of Fox News as being very aligned with Republicans. You hear Democrats calling it state-run television, yada, yada, yada. Well, Hannity kept talking over the speakers in yes. part because Sean Hannity wants to be on TV. Sean Hannity doesn't show up on TV. He's not, you know, he doesn't feel like he's doing his job. The Republican National Committee and Republicans wanted the speakers to be it, and you had this rare situation in which the interests of Sean Hannity and the other talk, you know, talking head hosts of all the cable networks and the interests of the party were completely diametrically opposed. And I saw a whole bunch of people in my timeline on Twitter who were like, why do I have to change a channel from Fox News if I want to watch what people are actually saying at the convention? At one point, Steve Scalise was talking about getting
1: shot by uh, a radical Bernie Sanders supporter and no cable channel was covering it. And it was in the first hour. So the networks hadn't tuned in yet. Only on C-SPAN was that part on there. Do you know what I
2: suspect is going on, Craig? Wow. So here's the, the traditional convention, you've got three hours of, of, you know, non-prime time, but let's say cable news and one hour in, in the regular network news. And you have a speech and then you have one of those happy videos of, you know, our president believes the children of the future, teach them well and let them be, the, you know, that kind of stuff. And usually that's when the pundit roundtable pops in and talks about what they just saw somebody say. And now with this one, there really isn't much of that. There's less of that because the videos are like the main show; they're not the filler in between the speakers. So now all of a sudden, you've got the you know like the the cable news networks are used to having these little breaks where you can say, "Okay, let's come in and have our pundits argue about what they saw," and they can't do that because the show the the show is still going on. Anyway, the end result turn to C-SPAN, people. that's what everyone was yelling at me last night to do. Exactly right. Uh, CNN cut to its panel after Trump had
1: the. the round table with the COVID survivors and they threw it to Dana bash at her first line was nobody was wearing a mask. And I'm thinking everybody gets tested
2: before going into the White House. Also, didn't they all just recover from COVID? <laughs> yes. I, mean, I know the debate about how much immunity you got afterwards, but if it's, if it's only been a couple of weeks or months, they're probably going to be fine. Probably going to be okay. Yeah. So Jim, let's put a
1: period on this podcast and uh, we'll see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Karumbas. Thanks very much for being with us today. Don't forget about the Conceived in Liberty Bradley Speaker Series. You can watch those 15-minute videos at bradleyfdn.org liberty. Please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch. We'd love to have a kind review and a five-star rating from you. Get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. And please join us Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.